Well, good evening, friends. This week, if you remember, uh, I'd ask you to pray for our brother, Wilf Ball. Uh, Tuesday, he flies out. He's gone for a month. He's off to Zambia for a three-week Bible translation workshop. He's become quite involved with Wycliffe. He usually travels overseas at least three, sometimes four times a year now. And uh, they've just finished up the New Testament in whatever language he's doing. I don't remember what the language was. Um, but now they're starting the Old Testament. And uh, Wilf is one of the back checkers. Very important. They translate into the language and then they think they've done it well and then they ask somebody who knows the language to translate it back into English to see if they've made a good connection. And sometimes they shake their heads and go, where did that come from? His goal is to see that <clears throat> the final word is as close to the original transcripts as they can be. So remember, Wilf, it's tiring time, and it's an intense three weeks, the workshop that, that he's involved with. Another comment, um, just as AJ was praying, um, it struck me how many Christians throughout history have been born into or were saved in or served in little churches, like little churches. Some pastors ministered to little flocks their entire life. And I'm, I would be surprised if we understood just how many have had that experience. It encourages me because I'm from a little church and sometimes you can get up and people are away and they're sick and you look out and there's nine people there. And you realize the Lord knows and the Lord's with us and he blesses and he doesn't count heads. He looks on the hearts and uh, we praise him for that. This is a dark chapter. I mean, there's light. I understand that because God is giving us revelation. He's teaching us. But there is a darkness to this chapter because it's all about wickedness. It's all about evil. And Peter goes into great detail in his efforts to warn Christians in his day of what to be on the lookout for. He was, he was so concerned for their well-being that he said, you need to know, we read at the beginning there, you need to know that there will be false teachers and false prophets among you. She's telling them, you need to look around because wherever you are, false teaching will attempt to sneak in and creep in. And he said, you need to be aware. So all of chapter two is dealing with false prophets. Last time we preached on this back in, I think it was back in December, um, we dealt with the first, the first 10 verses. And uh, in there we saw, let me just remind you of two or three different things. Number one, historically, anytime God reveals truth, Satan will bring forth lies to counter the truth. That is what the spirit of antichrist is. Anything that runs in opposition to the teaching of Jesus is an anti-Christian position. And that is Satan's heart. He is anti-Christ himself. And so every time there's truth, he will attempt to bring in lies to trip people up and to negate the power of that truth. Secondly, he told us that there were also damaging consequences when these lies come forward. First of all, to those who bring them, 
there is the judgment of God hanging over their heads. Unless there's repentance and a turning from that sinfulness, ultimately they will die and be judged by God and spend eternity in hell. But over and above the false prophets themselves, there are the Christians who fall prey to the false prophets' teachings. That's their goal. That's Satan's goal always. Once someone is saved, I believe Satan knows they can't be unsaved. He's enough of an awareness of the Bible, but he will do everything he can to make us the most useless, pathetic Christians that he can possibly make us. He will look to trip us up and bring us down and to make our testimony of no value, of no worth whatsoever. It's his goal. That's what he's after. And he does that through lies. That is his great power is through lies and through the lies of these false teachers. So believers, this chapter is a warning to us. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then lastly in that section, uh, Peter gave three powerful examples in history of God's judgment for such things. Uh, he talked first of all about fallen angels, angels who lost their first estate and were cast down uh, to earth. Now that is the demonic kingdom of, uh, of Satan. So he talks about their judgment. And then he talked about the worldwide catastrophic flood where everything on the land and the air was killed except for Noah and his family and the animals that were preserved on the ark. He talks about that judgment. And then he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah and what happens when sexual sin in particular rules the day. And that's what existed in Sodom and Gomorrah at the time and the judgment that came to them. Well, Peter has more to tell us. He's not done with his warnings, so he has more and hopefully we'll become aware of those as we go through this passage in some detail. In uh, verses 4 through 10a, uh, there were wicked individuals who were guilty of lots of things. They were guilty of sin in general, godliness, sensual conduct, lawless deeds, the lust of defiling passion, and those who despised authority. Well, now in these verses, we're going to see he delves further into their character and some other specific sins of which they're guilty. He's trying to be specific. Rather than saying these people are looking to draw us into sin, that's general. And we're aware of that, but it may not be specific enough in terms of a warning. And so he goes into some specifics. So our first point, and there are two main headings tonight. Uh, we're going to see in verses 10b, the latter part of verse 10 to the end, to the beginning of verse 13 to 13a, further demonstrations of their willfulness to sin. So not just their sinning, but their willfulness in doing so. Let me read those verses again. It says this, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Peter tells us there is nothing humble about these false teachers. They're arrogant, they're proud, and they make their opinions known with determination and without regret. They're not easily shifted from their positions. 
they would hold to their positions as strongly as Christians would hold to our positions. They're committed to these things. These things describe their hearts. And these are the things that they love. So they willfully teach things that are not true, and they're not afraid to do so. As we go through this passage, I want you to think about our day. I mean, this is Peter's day. And we're going to see that nothing changes. Nothing changes. It may change somewhat in terms of how it appears. But in terms of what emerges from the hearts of false teachers, it is always the same. So what Peter's talking about in his day, we see around us in our day. The intention of false teachers is to brazenly and intentionally blaspheme. You've heard people blaspheme, that is to speak irreverently about God or about sacred things, how the Lord's name is tossed about, how they make jokes about things that are of tremendous serious nature, and yet they treat them as if it's just folly. And they do it with presumption. They do it with open conceit. The question is, in this particular passage, who does Peter have in mind as the ones who are being blasphemed, the ones who are being spoken irreverently about? The original, from what I understand, simply says glories. They blaspheme the glories. The NIV says celestial beings. The New King James says dignitaries, but it has a footnote that says glorious ones. And that's the phrase that's used in the ESV. And that's the one we'll use for tonight. From the context, it doesn't seem that he could be talking about earthly magistrates, just individuals on the earth. We see that in terms of how the angels deal with it in verse 11. Them in that verse, in verse 11, seems to point to angelic beings. But the question is, which angelic beings? Are they blaspheming? Are they the holy angels of God? Are they the falling demons, the demonic world? Is that who they're going after? Or is it both? Well, there are challenges. Challenges which I will not completely unpack. I'm going to give you what I suggest is what we're going to look at, at least at the very least tonight. And that is that these individuals, after being warned about falling into the power and the path of demonic agents and their teachings, they would be warned about those kinds of things. We see that these arrogant heretics, they mock and they scoff as if these things don't exist. And if, it, if they do, then they don't really matter. Good angels, bad angels, doesn't really matter to them. They're ready to mock the lot. And in doing so, they grant themselves the, the right to slander even the demonic world, about which they know nothing. Whereas angels, who Peter tells us here, are superior in power and in knowledge and understanding, uh, they never go so far as to pronounce a judgment on them before the Lord. There's a parallel passage to this section from Peter in Jude. And I'm going to just read three verses, uh, Jude verses 8 to 10a. I'd say turn to chapter 1, but why don't I say that? <laughs> there is only the one. So verse 8 to 10a reads this. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. There's our phrase again. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, 
the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Again, it shows the arrogance, the high opinion that these people had of themselves, keeping in mind that they're putting themselves forward as legitimate teachers. We talk about false prophets and false teachers. These aren't just people sitting in the pews sharing an opinion. These are people looking to convince people. These are people who may have positions of authority, positions of power, and people are thinking, oh, you're the learned one. Maybe I should be listening to what it is you're saying. They are prophets. They are teachers in that sense, but they're false. They're bringing forth lies and not the truth as we would have it from God. Well, in passing, we need to see, I think, that there's a lesson here for all of us when it comes to speaking about that spiritual world of darkness. Um, there, is, there is a respectful fear we should have when it comes to the demonic world. And I say that only insofar as they're not to be trifled with. It's not a world to be dabbled in. It's not a world to be challenged. There's some people who go about looking for demon possession. They're on the hunt for demon possession because they want that interaction with the demonic world. And Peter's saying, yeah, that's, not, that's not what we're looking to do. The demonic world is there, but what does the Lord teach us? The Lord says, here's the armor of God. Here's how you defend yourself. What do we have in terms of weapons? Well, we have the word of God. We have the sword of the spirit. We have all prayer. Those are the kinds of weapons that we use against the demonic world. We should not dwell overly long or study overly deeply into that particular aspect of the world. The Lord gives us things and mostly he says, resist. You resist. It doesn't mean seek for an encounter because that just smacks of pride. And that smacks of the same kind of arrogance. We can say we can handle it. No problem when in fact we might find ourselves on the short end of that particular battle. So we use the weapons that God gives us, but we show us healthy respect for the power of the dark world because that's where the battle is. It's a spiritual battle, we understand that. But oh, get that armor on and get that shield up because what does the shield do? Well, it's what keeps us from the fiery darts of the wicked one. So that's uh, something, I think, to encourage us to understand about the demonic world, but not to dabble in it. Well, Peter then ascribes to these false teachers base animal instincts that aren't worthy of humanity. These are powerful phrases he uses here. Look what he says. They're like irrational animals. We don't think about animals being rational. They're not. They're instinctive. They follow base urges and base guidings from within in terms of their survival and in terms of their, their pursuits. And that's how these men are being described as creatures of instinct. They follow these uncontrolled urges. They think they're in control, but they're not. And he says they're born to be caught and destroyed. What a, what a pronouncement. They're born for this. This is their ultimate goal and purpose in life. It's ultimately be caught, caught in their lies. And ultimately, if there's no repentance, if there's no turning, to simply be destroyed. Well, we understand the destruction is, is an eternity in hell. We know that. So Paul or Peter pulls no punches when he tries to describe how careful we need to be in terms of watching for these kinds of people. 
quite a description. When you remove God's grace, the gap between human and animal shrinks. I'm not sure about you, I'm not an anthropologist, but I just know that in terms of the evolutionary world, people started out unintelligent and gradually developed intelligence over time, right? Until they became us, right? That's not the case at all. Man was created intelligent, but you take man and separate him from any kind of godly guidance and social norms, within two generations, you can have people literally dragging their knuckles on the ground, right, eating rocks. It doesn't take much to decline. One or two generations, and if things are cut off, then we become more like animals than like people. So there's not a, a rise in terms of humanity. There is a declension in terms of humanity um, based on, on the sin that, uh, that we commit, the sin that we battle. So here we see individuals where God's grace has been removed, where this gap diminishes. And man declines. He declines in emotion. He declines in reason. He declines in the ability to use his will. And yet, Peter describes in that way, and yet, how do they see themselves? Well, they see themselves as the elite. They're the enlightened ones. Wow, that's today. People who have drifted farther and farther and farther away from God are the proudest people on the planet. They brag about the kinds of things they've done and how they've freed us from all the bondage that we find in Scripture. They're blind. They're blind. They don't realize that. But in terms of spiritual things, that's what they are. They've forsaken the way of God to such an extent, to such an extreme, and they've pursued such a path of sinfulness that they've been degraded completely in spite of their best efforts to call themselves exalted or to see themselves. I think I've mentioned this before. I think we're all tired of experts, aren't we? And we're all tired of the phrase, follow the science, because there are 1,743 sciences out there. And depending on which one suits your cause, you just appeal to that one. But the idea of experts, that's who false teachers and false prophets will present themselves as. They're the knowing ones. If you really want to understand them, listen to them. And they believe it. So their charges against these glorious ones, these angelic beings, they're all rooted in ignorance. So in spite of their self-proclaimed wisdom, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, that's hard to deal with, isn't it? <clears throat> we don't ever want to come across as not knowing what we're talking about. But oh, we do. We do, boy. We get our opinions, and we slip them in there. And sometimes when people call us up short with little arguments that unravel our position so quickly, hopefully we're humbled by that. And we're just quicker to listen and slower to speak uh, the next time around. But these individuals, no, this is what they specialize in. They have knowledge. They do, but it's all natural. It's a natural, earthly wisdom and knowledge. It's not heavenly. It's not from God. It's not spiritual, though they might claim that it is. They're without grace, and they're headed for destruction, reserved for, as Peter says here, the marauding beasts. Now, I think it's just in the ESV, just the way it's translated. But look at those two phrases, destroyed 
in their destruction. That's, that's ironic. And that's, that's a play on those words, that they're seeking to destroy, but in their efforts to destroy, they themselves will be destroyed. And then that comes, follows up another phrase, suffering wrong, for what? For they are wrong doing. You read in Proverbs a number of times where it says, individuals set a trap and then they fall into it themselves. They set a snare and they're the ones that are trapped by it. That's ultimately the goal, or the, the result of the lives of these particular individuals, that the things they try to do will come back on their own heads. There's a steep price to pay for false teaching. Now, being in error is a different thing because we can be in error, but then if people point the error out to us and we're convinced that, oh, I see I was wrong, then you apologize, you ask for forgiveness, and you move on wiser than we used to be. But that's not these people. These people teach falsely, they teach lies, and the judgment that they will ultimately experience is of their own making. This is a wage that they have earned. What is the wage of sin? It's death. And that's what these individuals are headed for. There'll be another proof that people will reap what they sow. Well, then let's go on to the last section because we're just going up to verse 16 today. And here we're going to see he focused on the area of adultery, adultery and wickedness, especially in the area of greed. Now, again, look how he describes them. <clears throat> the second half of verse 13. They are blots and blemishes. When I've been described a lot of different ways in my life, I don't think I've been called a blot or a blemish, a wart or a scab. That's how he's coming at these people. That's how he sees them. He sees these people as blots and blemishes, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Well, I think in these verses, Peter here shifts his focus to the impact that these false teachers have on the church and can have on the church. Apparently, these false teachers are still deeply involved in the work of the church. These aren't people on the outside. These are people on the inside that Peter has heard about and is teaching against. And when we consider the church to be the body of Christ, then these individuals, well, they're the warts, and they're the scabs, and they're the diseases that afflict the body. They do the opposite of what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be blameless, and we're supposed to be spotless. But these individuals are the exact opposite of that. And, and they rejoice in doing so. It's not like there's guilt on their part where they kind of drag themselves forward saying, I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing. No, no, they're all in with what they're doing. That word revel means they rejoice in what they're doing. They rejoice in teaching lies, trying to steer people in directions that take them away from God. And they do so openly not even under cover of darkness, but they do it in the day. It's not even a secret. I was telling Jess and AJ that um, today, Ethan and a couple of others went off to see a friend baptized in this church. 
And uh, so I asked them how the baptism went. And they just went, uh. You think, I said, well, how was the church? Uh. <laughs> thinking, okay, this isn't good. I'll only share one thing. But they said when it came to, they had communion afterwards. And when they came to communion, the, the man leading, I'm guessing he was the pastor, he sat up at the front and he said, see these things? No one really knows why we do this. No one. He said, but we do it anyway, so let's go. Well, that is a false teacher, right? That is a false prophet, someone using that position to cast doubt on something that is so clearly laid out. So we're not just talking about elsewhere. This is, this is Niagara Falls, right, where intelligent people live. And there's supposedly there are sound churches, but there's also unsound churches where we have these individuals bringing forth ignorance in terms of things that are clearly laid out in Scripture. And they do it openly. It's not done in secret. It's done in front of everybody. So they spend their time ultimately without profit, and they waste it in sinful living. And to do it all without guilt. Oh, I'm so thankful for guilt. I tell you, I remember at teacher's college, them trying to tell me, because I did a phys ed degree along with some math, and so you had to do courses in health. And so you're doing health education. Well, even back then, that's back in the, seven, the 70s, <laughs> the 1970s. And they were talking about what we need to do is get rid of every aspect of guilt. Because they said, that's a problem. When people feel guilty, now they're depressed. And now they're sad. Well, how do you make them sad and not depressed? Well, you take away the guilt. You say you're not guilty of anything. Don't feel bad about what it is you do. And I remember debating them, and they all looked at me like I was from another planet. I said, don't you see that guilt is good? Like guilt, now, if you, don't, if you ignore guilt, that's not doing you any good. But guilt tells us that you've crossed the line, that you've done something that you understand is wrong, and you need to fix that. You need to right it. Well, these individuals, false teachers, unless the spirit works upon them and starts to change their heart, they do all this without guilt. No hesitation in bringing forward their lies and seeking to impose them on the people. Asking or using whatever deception seems the most expedient, most productive. And this is done while they enter into fellowship with these people. I said they're in their midst. They're in their fellowship with the people of God, even feasting with them even possibly being at the Lord's table with them, being just like this man who says, you know, I have no idea what this is about, but I'm going to do it anyway because that's what we do in church. Well, often sins we know are heaped upon sin. I'll give you an example, getting drunk, for example. Once those inhibitions are taken away, see, inhibitions are good. Inhibitions create filters. So you don't say and do stupid things. But the very first thing that alcohol, and this isn't an anti-alcohol rant, but let it be so if that's the case, it's the first thing that goes are inhibitions. First thing that goes, which is why they say you shouldn't drive. You know, and you have people take your keys away because they don't know they shouldn't drive because their awareness, their ability to weigh things up is suddenly reduced. It's been numbed in some way. And it causes you to commit other sins that may not have been committed without the first sin. There can be this domino effect. Another example is lying. Good thing we've never lied. Good, oh, there's one right there, All right? Okay, I'm now guilty of it. 
when you lie, you get boxed in. Because once you tell one lie, then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. And then you start to forget, what lie did I tell? And to who? And it can be, it's just, it just unravels. It just unravels so quickly. Well, here we have the case here. Peter speaks, in this case, of adultery. And it's not just a passing thought in their cases. It's not just a passing desire. He tells us here that it's an insatiable desire. Insatiable. It never ends. It never abates. It never ceases. It is always with them, which shows the true state of their souls. The objects of their eyes, whatever or whoever it is, they want. And they want within their grasp and within their hold. And that's what women and men become. They become objects. Objects to satisfy sinful desires that are never abated. The closest picture I had to that was in Pirates of the Caribbean and Captain Barbosa and all the dead guys. Remember, they could eat and they were never satisfied. It had no taste. It was like dust in their mouth. But they did it anyway because they were desperate for some kind of taste. It was an insatiable desire that was never satisfied. Well, that's what these individuals have. These individuals are moved by this. So they actively seek to lead unsteady souls into sexual sin. Now, we live in a day of sexual amorality. There are, it's not immorality. We're beyond that. It's just amoral. There are no rules whatsoever. Um, we have created laws to eliminate virtually all rules. It will not be long before um, a son will be able to marry his mother. Like what grounds do they have to say not? Or a brother to marry his sister. Or because they've lost all their moral moorings, and so they're left with nothing. And so someone's going to take it to court, and they're going to challenge it, and the Supreme Court of Canada is going to say, Psh, we got nothing wrong with that. The kinds of sexual sins that we're facing, keep in mind where a lot of these believers came from. A number of them would have been Jews, I'm sure, but they're also Gentiles in the mixer. Well, they came from pagan backgrounds. A lot of sexual sin within the pagan world, all kinds of it. So can you see how these people might be more easily led astray? Because they come from a background, they, they're not well grounded. So what they would do, these individuals would seek out the weak links, seek out the people that weren't well grounded, the people that weren't well taught, the people that were unsure, and they would take advantage of them. Take advantage of them. And if they could take advantage of them sexually, so be it. We're gonna see the next thing they wanna take advantage of is their money because these individuals are also greedy. So they look for the weakest individuals and they look to pull them down. That's why we need to be watching for one another. We need to keep our eyes open. Um, I've mentioned this to you before, but Mary Lynn was the one who saw people who struggled. Not me. Unless someone was bawling their eyes out, lying on the floor in the fetal position, I might say, oh, I think there's something, something wrong here. I'm pretty good at inquiring once I know. I can dig. But to recognize it, Mary Lynn would come up to me and she'd just say, Mark, you really need to go talk to such and such. I said, why? Mark, just trust me. You need to talk. So you go over and say, so how you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? And the lip starts to quiver and the tears start to come and you realize there's something. I, I never saw it. 
my radar didn't detect those kinds of things, but, but hers did. Well, these individuals have radar, and they hunt, and they're looking for the weak, and those who are lonely, and those who are cast down, and they will look to make them their own. And we understand that this has not changed. In our day, the question that people will ask us has, has God really said? Does that sound familiar? Has God really said? But I think in our context, it's the idea of, has he really said, don't? Because we'll combine, we'll say, well, we just don't do that. Are you sure? Are you sure that's? So within the church, can you see certain leaders saying, okay, so I'm not sure it opposes it completely in the Bible, but let's, let's marry same-sex couples. Let's just, let's just do that. Because that's, that's what the world is looking for, and it's the loving thing to do, it's the kind thing to do. And you start to take certain areas of Scripture in the whole sexual realm, and you start to take away the don'ts. Um, we understand that in terms of sexuality, it's a monogamous relationship between a married man and woman. End of story. It's really quite simple. What I think Scripture emphasizes, and the world doesn't hear it enough from us, are the do's. They focus on the don'ts, the things that say, don't do this, don't do that. We need to focus on what God approves of, what pleases God, what follows after God's created order. And so we, we raise the whole issue of the importance of families, the importance of husbands and wives staying together. That's why we have pastors preach on marriage and families and raising kids and all those kinds of things that are so essential. We, we need to emphasize the positive elements of how we're supposed to live in this world. But these teachers, they will do the opposite. Well, he moves on to talk about desire for gain, either of money or power or privilege. You know, greed, desire for more and more and more. And when you have that, then you want more because there's always more. You never have all. And until you have more, people don't seem to be able to stop. Um, greed, it's this desire that seems to form the foundation of what these false teachers really want from others in the church. They would look to take advantage of people's hospitality, of people's generosity, and to benefit for themselves from it. It just reminds us of even in the midst of Jesus. I mean, who did we have? We had Judas, and he was a thief, and he cared about money. That's what he cared about. I think it's the main reason he went to and gave Jesus up when just the last things that Jesus had said and done and talking about the poor and so on. And it was like the last straw for him and off he went. Well, these things don't just happen in a vacuum. Peter tells us that their hearts are trained in greed. There's a scary thought. There are children who are trained in greed by their parents. There are husbands who are trained in greed by their wives and vice versa. It takes effort and skill to be really greedy if you're going to make it work. The word trained in greed, it's from the Greek gymnasium. If you went to Greece in the third century BC or even the, once you get to the first century, now it's have Roman influence. It gets a lot bloodier when it, the Romans come in to the games and so on. But if you wanted to find any of the philosophers of the day, you found them at the gymnasium because they believed in working the body and the soul and however it is they described, I forget their little triangle that they have in terms of spirit and so on. But they were very much in favor of training physically. 
The Olympic Games ran from about 776 BC to about 330 AD, and they were never missed. Every four years, for a thousand years, they took place. That's pretty amazing. We can't get through 10 years without a strike, right, on any sport. But not them, because it was all part of the religion. It was all part of their philosophy. It was all part of their understanding. Well, these individuals, they trained the way an individual would train for an Olympic event, which was seriously. It's an active, intentional lifestyle of wickedness. And then he calls them accursed children. Accursed children, meaning children of a curse. Now, Peter's not pronouncing a curse. That's not what we're called on to do. We're not called on to pronounce curses on people or curses even on the demonic world. He simply points out that this will be the final condition of unrepentant sinners, especially these false teachers and these false prophets. They'll receive no blessing from God, but simply his eternal curse, a dreadful condition against which we must issue warnings with the spirit of love when we can. Well, let's come to our last two verses, 15 and 16. Uh, first of all, Peter makes an observation. Uh, the picture seems to be of individuals who once walked the path of following Jesus, but they've forsaken him. They have left that path, and now they wander off into darkness. The phrase, the right way, is that straight path that leads through the narrow gate um, and leads ultimately to life and to glory. So having gone astray, these individuals, they prove that they're in the group spoken of by John, uh, there's a verse in 1 John 2, verse 19. And he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, that they all are not of us. So these individuals seem to have gone astray in their hearts, but they're still hanging around the church. They haven't gone out of the church yet, these individuals. They're still there causing trouble and distress to believers. Now, this should be a reminder to anyone that's an unbeliever is that it takes much more than simply hanging around a church to be saved. And those of us here who were saved, you know that. But perhaps there are people that are listening or others that we're aware of. They need to know that just being in the vicinity of Christians does nothing except expose you to the truth, which ultimately in God's mercy may be used uh, to save you. So this is a reminder that... We need to encourage people. Still, we need to exhort that you can't just let these things slip or to slide or put it off for another day. But you need to close with Christ. You need to come to the Lord Jesus. You need to believe in him for the saving of your soul. And believing in him means you need to believe in everything that he did in his life, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension to glory, and what he's going to do when he returns in glory. And believe it all and say, Lord... Savior, let me serve you, let me follow you. And the Lord says, come. He says, come. He says, come to me. He says, I'll give you rest. So we exhort people, we encourage people, even false teachers. We encourage them to repent and to turn. Well, second, <clears throat> second after the observation, he provides an illustration. And that's the illustration of Balaam. Balaam Balaam's an odd character. You know, I, one of these days I'm just going to have to read a book on Balaam because he confuses me, right? Is he a good guy? Is he not a good guy? Read the Old Testament, you're thinking, okay, he's just kind of testing the waters and he's listening to God, but the New Testament shows us what his heart is. And his heart was really after gain, 
Like he really, really, really wanted whatever it was the king was going to give him. His, the mountains of gold and whatever it might be. You, you recall that he wanted to curse the Israelites for King Balak, but uh, even though he knew that they were God's chosen people, he even witnessed the sexual immorality of the Moabites in their efforts to seduce Israel, in their efforts to bring Israel down. He witnessed that. And isn't this what the false teachers were trying to do again? Trying to lure believers into revelry and sexual sin, obvious displays of greed for personal gain and the teaching of heresies intended to get believers to go astray. Balaam's sins, they've arisen again and again in the church and were being warned against being deceived. And what about his donkey? What about Balaam's donkey? Well, perhaps the simplest explanation in this context is that if the Lord can use a donkey to alter the path of an individual who wanted to be a false teacher, then he can certainly use the church and use his word to do the same to false teachers in our day. There are false teachers who are converted. There are false prophets who the Lord pulls back from the brink. There are. And so we're told in verse 9 of this chapter, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. So there may be individuals that we can interact with and we can speak with and we can present the word of God to and they themselves will be converted. Well, at first I thought we might be able to get through the rest of the chapter tonight, but you can see we're already done with time and we still have, he has more to say. He's not done with his false teachers yet. And there's some very challenging sections. I also delayed because I don't think I'm ready for this, this next section. You might need a, what they call a correctional message. Come from Carl afterwards, but if so, I don't want to hear about it, okay? So two things in summary, just two brief things in summary. A false teachers bring a challenge to every age of the church, and ours is no exception, of course. Now, the good news is, with your background, with your teaching, you're well-grounded. Like in the basic, key, broad doctrines of Scripture, you're not going to get suckered in to thinking that God isn't sovereign or suckered into thinking that, you know, God doesn't have his elect and so on. They're key elements that you're entirely aware of. But be aware that Satan also knows you're aware. And he is the cleverest of all enemies. And what he likes his false teachers to do with us is to bring in just a little error. Wrap it up in a great big truth, but then just shift it. And that's why you have elders. Especially that's why you have a pastor. The number of times I've read things in the past and thought, well, that makes sense to me. And then Carl comes and says, Mark, did you notice? And I went, uh, uh, no, this guy's evil. You know? Because <laughs> I don't have that awareness of where he's slightly shifted. And so I rely on other individuals to point out those errors. And that's what we need to do. Look to people who see these things and ask for clarification because he is clever. So we need to watch and to beware and to be vigilant and to test all things. And then lastly, again, to understand that the disastrous consequences for sin, just don't just lie at the door of false teachers. The consequences lie at the door of all sinners, all sinners who don't come to Christ. They may carry the heaviest burden of responsibility, especially if they lead little ones astray. We know what Jesus has to say about those individuals. 
But anyone foolish enough to follow them will also be held accountable. So we need to be careful as believers because we'll give an account one day. And we don't want to have to be able to say, yeah, I didn't pay attention. I wasn't watching. I was careless. You know, I believed without checking. I wasn't a good Berean. I didn't go back and see whether or not this was actually what it was in Scripture. So there's a warning here for believers not to be led astray. So in our day, guys, let's not be distracted. We live in a world of distractions. The church faces distractions. I would say get off the blogs. Get off the vlogs. I don't know what else there is because I don't look at any of them. We know there are sound people out there that are helpful, but I would say get into the Bible. Read scripture. Uh, Somebody has recommended for every 40 minutes you spend listening to something, you should read for 40 minutes. Because it's through the word of God and the Spirit's work upon us that we're going to understand and we're going to be strengthened and we're going to have that knowledge and wisdom and understanding that we need to stand against the wiles of the devil. So So we need to get into his word. So let's not waste our time following after myths and arguments and conspiracies and agendas that have no real value in equipping us to do those works that God has prepared for us to do. Let's get on with doing the work and to serve him with joy and to serve him with a vigor and energy that the world will say, what are you about? And we can say, hmm, I'm about Jesus. So we are. Well, our God is a sovereign God. Amen for that.